Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have Leonard Pullmutter, also known as Ram Lev. He is the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute. He studied in India under Swami Rama of the Himalayas, whose lab studies at the Maringer Institute demonstrated that blood pressure, heart rate, and the autonomic nervous system can be voluntarily controlled. In this episode, we will be discussing meditation to focus attention, deal with anger, prepare for sleep, and how meditation can improve your ability to trust and access your conscience. This episode is full of practical wisdom, and I highly recommend it for everyone. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Kaka TV Podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for being with us here today. And it's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get into meditation and yoga sciences, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you personally to meditation and yoga? I think that my primary motivation was I was dealing with pain from eating the standard American diet. My body, evidently, just didn't care for all that kind of food. And it was unusual because nobody in my family had those same kinds of symptoms. And it wasn't until I left the house and went away to school, starting to make decisions for myself, that things began to feel better. And I've always been very philosophically oriented since a little child. And the two principles that have guided me have been philosophy, because that's just the way I see the world, but also practicality. I enjoy philosophy. I enjoy studying it. I enjoy practicing it. But it has to have a practical application for me to really give it any energy at all. So those are the two pillars, practicality and philosophy. And that led me to begin studying religions and spiritual traditions around the globe. And it was very interesting because there seemed to be at the core of each one something that was very similar. And then I began reading the perennial philosophies and I realized, and that led me to uh, yoga science, and I realized that, gosh, yoga science is the origin of every religion, of every spiritual tradition. And I was fortunate and blessed enough to have met a teacher from India who was a representative of what is known as the Bharati tradition, which in English translation is lovers of wisdom, and this is the oldest continuous spiritual tradition in the world, and it has become the origin, the basis, this educational body of knowledge has become the basis of all religions. All the great, great pre preceptors from all the different traditions essentially were yoga scientists. And I'm very honored today to carry on that lineage and that tradition. Our audience is mainly women with hormonal imbalances, autoimmune issues, adrenal issues, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you're speaking to a very highly busy and stressed group of people. So okay. these type of women, including myself, they're not likely to sit and meditate. So perhaps this is especially why they should. What are some reasons this population should seriously consider incorporating meditation? First of all, meditation does something that nothing else can do. It introduces us to our own self. Not the body, not the mind, not the personality, but the core of our being. And it does it by asking us to train the mind to be one-pointed in our attention. Now, it's interesting, the energy of the mind automatically becomes one-pointed when you and I and every other human being experiences something that we love. Could be a great movie. 
It could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be a child, it could be a book, it could be a wonderful meal. But anything that we tell other people, oh, I love that, or I love this person, what we're saying is, and what we're really reflecting is the fact that the energy of our mind is automatically focused to one object, to the exclusion of others. We have that same experience when we go to a concert that's really a good concert. It's, we're still aware, but we're just no longer in the concert aware of ourselves. Intermittently we might be, maybe between songs or something like that, but if it's a great band and it's wonderful music, my awareness just takes on a, goes on a magical trip of some wonderful experience. And when it's finished, I turn to the person next to me and say, oh, I love that concert. But it wasn't really the concert that made me happy. It was the fact that my mind was focused to a point. And when we learn in meditation to give our exclusive attention either to the mantra or the breath, not only does the mind experience one-pointed attention, but also it experiences a space between stimulus and response. When I give full one-pointed attention to any object, it creates a space between stimulus and response. And what is in the middle of that space between stimulus and response? It's my freedom of action, my freedom to choose. It's like slow motion. Mm -hmm. And in that space, it provides me the freedom to check with my conscience. I have this relationship, this stimulus. It could be a meal. It could be a person. It could be a concept. But it's in my mind now, which means I have to take an action. I either have to continue thinking it or speaking about it or acting in service to it. And all of those forms of actions bring about consequences that can bring me the health, the happiness, the security, the loving, nurturing, creative relationships that I deeply desire or will lead me in an opposite direction and I'll experience pain. So the conscience alone has the capacity to do that. It can reflect perfect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. It has that capacity. The superconscious portion of the mind is the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations, where Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. Doesn't mean that either of us is going to become a songwriter or a physicist. What it does mean is, if I can have my mind trained to be one-pointed, to create a space between stimulus and response that provides me the freedom of action, I can check with my conscience to determine the thought to think, the word to speak, the action to take, that will ameliorate the pain in the body and the mind and allow me to fulfill the purpose of my life without the pain, without misery, and without bondage. When you say like fixating on one point, is that the same as maybe being in flow state? Yes, sure. Okay. That's what people say. They're in flow. That's right. It's any athlete that is in flow they are totally focused. And that's what makes a great athlete. It makes an Olympic winner or any great star that we know. That's the difference because most athletes at that level of competition, physically, they're fairly well evenly matched. The difference is how the mind operates. Is the mind going to be distracted or is it not going to be distracted? Because if it's distracted, some of that individual athlete's energy is going to be diverted away from the competition, away from the activity that it's involved in. Yeah, I saw an experiment once. It was an athlete playing basketball. And first they had regular people who were just athletic playing it. And then they would have the crowd cheer for them and they would score more. And then they would have the crowd boo for them and they wouldn't score as much. 
And then the athlete got there. And in both scenarios, they were still able to score the same amount. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's all about the mind because all the body is in the mind. All the body is in the mind. The body is a projection of the mind. I can't raise my hand without first entertaining a thought. The mind moves first. The body follows. So if the body is in pain and there's dis-ease in the body or the mind, it means that there's conflict in the mind. There's some kind of conflict in the mind that is seeking resolution. So it's up to us to heed the message of pain at a low decibel level and make a mid-course correction. It's like when we're driving the automobile to a location that we've never been and we put the address into our GPS and the voice says, turn left here, turn right here. And if I override that information by making uh, the wrong turn, GPS says to me, recalculating. That's what we have to do. Pain is a messenger. It's not bad. It's actually a wonderful gift that lets us know we are headed in the wrong direction in some area of our life that is ready to be changed. So we're also good at coming up with stories in our heads and upsetting ourselves either over the past or made up situations. What can we do to control our own thoughts and therefore emotions? If the truth be known, we all spend a tremendous amount of time in the past or in the future. In the past, we live in the past so much. All these memories and some are pleasant, no doubt. Some are unpleasant. And if we're in the mind is not in the past, it's in the future. Entertaining an unending train of what if situations. What if this should happen? What if that should happen? What if neither happens? So rarely are we in the present moment. And yet, the only thing that ever happens always happens in the present moment, now. So every day I try to explain to my personality that right now our job is to bring yesterday and tomorrow into today and then bring today into now. And now, at this auspicious moment, it's up to me to ask my conscience, what is the thought to think? What is the word to speak? What is the action to take that will lead me for my highest and greatest good, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? So there's a big cultural movement, at least in the U.S. that I've seen, to talk about your trauma, to label yourself as a victim. Everyone is now feeling freely talking about everything that they didn't like growing up, every unpleasant experience. And I'm wondering what that might be doing to our mental states as I don't see depression rates going down with this new movement. I see them rising. And I, so what are your thoughts on the oversharing victimhood culture that's emerged recently? I would say that it's uh, an unfortunate situation and it's very painful. So it's an issue concerning the reptilian brain. And the, the reptilian brain is all about self preservation and it triggers the fight, flight, freeze response. And the fight, flight, freeze response kicks in whenever there's a danger. And it doesn't have to be real. It can be imagined or it can be remembered. So if I am playing these old stories in my mind over and over again, each time, as far as my mind is concerned, I am re-experiencing it. I am reinforcing the fight, flight, freeze syndrome which is meant just as a temporary basis just to reset our what's normal. 
But because we become so mentally addicted to these stories, we are constantly calling for a cascade of hormones that poison the body and depress the mind. Mm -hmm. So when we examine in the quietude of a contemplation the power of our story, we have to find out if there, inside of that story, if there is a legitimate desire that was not served at some point in my life. And if that's the truth, then I need to recognize that desires that are blocked then are repressed. Mm -hmm. And that repressed desire becomes depression. So if that desire was actually positive, then it's up to me to try to fulfill that desire. If that desire originally was not meant to be fulfilled, I need to sacrifice it back to the origin from which it came. We call that G-O-D, so that the inherent contractive and debilitating energy of that story can be transformed into a healing energy, an increase in willpower, and an increase in my creative capacity. So with everything that most of the world has been going through in the last two years or so, what do you think that the news, the shock and fear attention tactics of the media has been doing to us collectively? It has crippled us and it has enslaved us. And it has diminished our creative capacity to fulfill the purpose of our lives. And it engenders a hopelessness and a willingness just to survive as best we can. And for me, that's not good enough. So yoga scientists are not herd animals. No doubt we all have that herd instinct in us because we are animals. We are human animals. So yes, we do have that herd instinct. But a yoga scientist can use the conscience to go beyond habit when appropriate. Not all the time. You don't throw the baby out, so to speak, with the bathwater. The culture can be very helpful in many areas. This, is, this culture provides us just marvelous things that nobody in the history of the world has ever experienced. My gosh. I live in a very rural area of upstate New York, halfway between New York and Montreal. So it's pretty far up, pretty far north. And in my local grocery store, there's organic produce from California and Florida and South America. My gosh, every day it's fresh. And it helps to keep my body healthy. What a gift. And yet there are other things that are being offered, other suggestions by the culture that are not appropriate. So if I do not have a philosophy of life that recognizes that every thought that comes into my awareness is only a suggestion of what to give my attention to, then I am going to remain enslaved. And that is very sad because what happens is we wind up dying with the music still inside of us. And that work of art that we were capable of creating is never brought out for us to appreciate and for the world to benefit from. Can you explain to us the four functions of the mind? I sure can. 
Now, it's interesting that when we were children, we thought to ourselves intuitively that there are different voices in the mind. And there, as it turns out, there are. And there are actually four of them. Those, these are the four functions of the mind. And they work before we take an action, before we take a physical action, before we speak a word, and even before we continue thinking a thought. These functions of the mind operate. But there is only one function of the mind, and that is the conscience that has the power to make a decision. Now, that's, that was a shock to me when I first heard it, because what it meant to me was every human being in the history of the world has always used the conscience to make every single decision and every choice. We think that we only use the conscience for weighty moral issues. We say, oh, make it a decision of conscience. But every decision, whether I'm, gonna, uh, whether I'm going to have an ice cream cone, whether I'm not going to have an ice cream cone, whether I'm going to go to sleep, whether I'm not going to go to sleep, whether I'm going to eat this or I'm going to eat that, every decision that I make, every decision, even the thought to think, is made by the conscience. And the conscience has two capacities to make decisions. One is, as I mentioned, it has the capacity when the mind is quiet. The, the conscience can act as a mirror that can reflect superconscious wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind that will provide me the thought to think, the word to speak, and the action to take that will lead me for my highest and greatest good. But for that to occur, the mind has to be quiet because the voice of the superconscious wisdom speaks in whispers. But the other three functions of the mind cannot make the choice, cannot make a decision, only the conscience. So the other three functions of the mind, the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind become advisors. They become loud, pushy, insistent lobbyists so that the conscience will adopt their limited perspective. And at the present time, <clears throat> the culture has created technology that has agitated the mind so much, agitated the ego, titillated the senses, and the unconscious mind so much that they're so loud and they're so pushy and they're so insistent. There's so much noise in the mind that the conscience cannot hear the whisper from the superconscious wisdom. So the conscience will ultimately make the choice of what to do and what not to do, what to speak and what not to speak, what to think and what not to think. But because the conscience at that point, with all that noise going on in the mind, all that clamor, cannot hear the faint signal coming from the superconscious wisdom. The conscience only has one choice, and that is to rubber stamp the loudest voice it can hear. And that is what brings us a whole lot of pain. So the key to successful living is to parent and train the ego senses, and unconscious mind to gather information as best it can from the world and present it in a finding or a suggestion and then to quiet down after it makes its presentation. So then the conscience 
can reflect superconscious wisdom, then it's up to me as the parent of all the mind to encourage everybody to support the superconscious wisdom that is reflected by the conscience. Now, sometimes that will mean that the conscience will say, oh, the ego in this particular case has the appropriate suggestion. In other words, we need a healthy ego to drive an automobile or a truck. Without a healthy ego, we're likely to get into an accident or worse. Mm -hmm. Same for the senses. We have a body. We have senses. Life is to be enjoyed. If I love something and I eat it all the time, eat it all the time, eat it all the time, sooner or later, that, that's going to make me sick. So things that are pleasant are not necessarily good for us sometimes. Things that are unpleasant aren't always bad for us. But if we just listen to the limited perspectives of the ego, senses, and unconscious mind, without hearing the superconscious wisdom at the core of our being, then we're going to suffer physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm sorry to report, that is the human condition today. And how can meditation improve your ability to trust your conscience? Meditation as I began earlier to say, provides us tools, skills, one-pointed attention, detachment, that space between stimulus and response, and if I can listen to the conscience in, with the freedom that I have with the space between stimulus and response and do what's to be done and not do what's not to be done, in effect, I will be building the muscles of willpower, and I will be expanding my consciousness, expanding the creativity that I have access to. And if I can apply those skills in every relationship, life will become poetry. And So sometimes in my life when I have a decision to make or a question, I'll ask myself that before I go to sleep and then I'll have a dream and I'll always find the answer. And I've done that since I was a small child with great success my whole life. Would that kind of be a technique to ask your conscious or is that something else? Sometimes our super conscious wisdom can come through dreams. Our super conscious wisdom can also come through people who are teaching us what not to do. People are modeling for us both what to do and what not to do. Mm -hmm. It's up to us to know which is which. But people that model for us and try to teach us as best they can what not to do, we get angry at them. We think they're bad people. They don't think or act the way that I do. But really, what they're trying to do is to teach us, hey, I, in my life, am driving over a cliff in my automobile. Mm -hmm. And if you follow me, you're going to go over the cliff and you're going to be in pain just like I'm in pain. That's really the message of many people today. Mm -hmm. Don't do what I'm telling you. <laughs> Don't say what I'm saying. Don't think what I'm thinking. Don't do what I'm doing. That's why I tell people that one of my most important teachers in my whole life has been Elvis Presley. When I was a little kid, I fell in love with Elvis Presley. Celebrities have charisma. And so for me, I gave a tremendous amount of attention as a child to Elvis Presley. I loved his music. I loved his voice. And because I gave so much attention over the years and over the decades, I began to watch choices that he made, many of which were in conflict with my own inner wisdom. 
And so in a real sense, part of the relationship that I had with him was that he was teaching me how not to live portions of my life. And I am very grateful for that teaching. So things like anger can leave you maybe unable to calm yourself down for a few hours, maybe ruminate about it. And how can you be one of those, how can you train yourself to be one of those people who when something horrible happens or you get really upset or let's say someone cuts you off in traffic instead of getting angry and you know feeling like you almost died and wanting to be upset, how can you just shrug your shoulders and go, oh, at least I, nothing bad happened and just go about your day? Like, how can you train yourself to, instead of reacting and getting angry, to just be one of those people that's just easier going? Well, that's why I have become a yoga scientist. So I look at the anger through the lenses of science. And I say to myself, what is anger? I say, anger is something that turns my hand into a fist. That's right, Leonard. That's right. This is anger. This is not anger. Two expressions of what? Different forms of energy. Different forms of energy. This is contracted and debilitating energy. And the example that you gave with anger, being cut off in traffic, what is that doing to me, to my body? It is poisoning my entire physiology. Mm -hmm. So when I'm cut off in traffic and a force of anger comes forward from my unconscious mind into my conscious mind and I want to do something that's not too nice, what am I going to do with that energy? What do I know about the end? What What do I know about the characteristics of energy. Oh, I say, I learned in fourth or fifth grade that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, but it can be transformed. I know that because I did a little experiment in grade school where we took ice and we heated it and it became water. And then we heated the water and it became steam, gas. So if I could do that with an ice cube and water into steam, what do you think I can do with this contracted energy of anger? I'll experiment with it. And instead of serving it continuously and poisoning my own body and mind, if I offer it back to the origin from which it came, everything comes from G-O-D. There's only one. If I in real time can then take it, please, dear God, please, dear Jesus, please, Divine Mother, whatever feels comfortable to you, back to the universe, please take this contracted form of energy transform it into a healing energy, an expansion of my willpower, and an increase in my creative capacity. And that's exactly what happens as a yoga scientist. So the anger, the fear, the greed, which all human beings experience is not bad. It's just energy. Is it to be served or is it to be sacrificed? Only the conscience reflecting superconscious wisdom in a quiet, serene mind will know what's to be done and what's not to be done with that form of contracted energy. Would that be the same as, let's say, you something bad happens and you get depressed and then you create really great art? Would that be a way you transform energy? You transform energy 
by in that case by if you're depressed it's critically important to take a selfless action not an ego or sense gratification in other words if you're depressed the answer is not to habitually go to the refrigerator freezer and get a couple of scoops of ice cream the answer is to act selflessly in the world to give of ourselves it's in giving that we receive we've heard that but we have to make it practical in our lives so creating a work of art is selfless you see i am marshalling my creative energies to give a gift to the world to enhance the beauty of the world the understanding of the world and it can take many forms but for sure if i am feeling depressed then within my life i have available to me an outlet a selfless outlet maybe it's just going into the bathroom and take a shower and and get dressed or maybe it's uh, to uh, send a thank you note to somebody or to volunteer somehow or to uh, make a wonderful dinner for myself and my family there's the there's always many options right in front of our face i find that sometimes the energies of others say somebody comes around and they're in a bad mood that they can be contagious are there any techniques to avoid allowing others unwanted energies to affect you they can only uh, affect me if i allow them to affect me i have a question for you cat if i gave you poison would you be obligated to swallow it no why not um cuz it's my choice that's right and it's not good for you right okay it's the same with any kind of emotional state of mind that another person is in we have an option we have a choice now i can feel compassion for that person i can try to attend to that person in a loving and a caring and a sensitive way but for me to take on that poison that makes absolutely no sense to me what's the connection why would i want to do that why do i do that i do it because in that moment i am sleepwalking i am unconscious of all the capacities and skills that i have to say thank you but no thank you i have no use for this at this time Okay, I like that. So, I heard of something called non-sleep deep rest meditation that it can be used to control stress and anxiety as well as increase your ability to learn. Now, I've heard of meditation to relax, but not to help with learning and focus. How can meditation be used to help with learning and focus cuz sometimes i need to do a project and i get distracted and i walk away and i have to tell myself no you have to finish and i have a problem with focus at times we train ourselves to be one pointed in our attention looking for easy ways to experiment with one pointed attention so if i'm on the phone and a mindlessly leafing through the ll bean catalog my mind is trying to do two things at once the culture is encouraging that isn't it they even have a term for it multitasking oh dear culture it's impossible for the human mind to multitask but you want us to multitask so how am i going to provide you dear culture with the appearance that Leonard knows how to multitask so that you will approve of me. Mhm. How? Well, the amygdala has to set in motion cascades of adrenaline through Leonard's entire physiology so that his mind can go back and forth very quickly between two objects. But what is the result of that? 
First of all, the immune system is depressed. Second of all, the mind is depressed. But if I learn to be one-pointed in my attention, I can do many things, and I can do them very skillfully. I, When I was a kid, I worked in a restaurant as a short-order cook, and I worked breakfasts where you were dealing with things like egg and toasts and coffee, things like that for people on their way to work. And so to be a, an excellent cook like that, a short, what they call a short order cook, you have to be one pointed in your, in your attention. If you're not one pointed in your attention, then the eggs will be ready, the coffee will be ready, but the toast will be burnt. So you have to be able to give total focus to the egg preparation and then at a safe time, bring your attention to find out where the toast is. And then in a, at a safe time, check, make sure that the coffee is going to be hot so that when the meal is presented, everything is in order. Mm -hmm. That's one-pointed attention. So that makes us much more creative, and it makes the body and mind much healthier. So I'm not going to be susceptible to all these colds all year or the flu or whatever. I'm going to have a good record in being at work and being a productive colleague of everybody that I'm with. But this, the culture, again, is selling multi-pointed attention. Mm -hmm. multitasking. Why? Why? Because if I am multitasking and I believe the culture and I try to appease the culture, I'm going to be running around like a chicken without the head. And I'm going to depress my immune system. I'm going to be sick. Uh, my mind is going to be depressed. And what am I going to do about it? I'm going to have a, uh, a hot fudge sundae. I'm going to buy a new pair of shoes. I'm going to go to Vegas for a week's vacation to avoid all my pain. I have to forget it for a week, you see, or for a moment. Or I'll have a drink. I can forget about it for an hour. But when the vacation is over, I still have the same issues. So that doesn't work. That's, that's unreasonable. It's not realistic. So you mentioned that your health can be affected from things like multitasking. Are there any, I've seen some meditations online that claim to be like, listen to this and you can heal yourself. Are there any merits to that? The tradition from which I teach is very clear. The key is to become self-reliant. The key is to be self-reliant, is to learn to train the mind so that you don't have to be dependent on the app that's outside of you. Because what if that app didn't work today and I'm feeling stress? What are you going to do then? No. The key is to train your own mind, train the ego, senses, and unconscious mind to do what's to be done when it's to be done and not do what's not to be done when it's not to be done so you can be self-reliant, not dependent on all these suggestions from outside, which are often wrong, even though the messengers are never in doubt. Just watch TV for a half hour. You'll see all these people. They know everything about everything, even though they're often wrong and never in doubt. To thine own self be true, Shakespeare says. To thine own self be true. Go within, seek within, find that truth within, and then serve it in mind, action, and speech, and just see what happens as an experiment. And don't take on anything that's too much or too burdensome. If you never had the occasion to exercise the body to build muscles, 
the last thing you would want to do is to go into the gym and try to pick up 200 pounds. It would hurt. You have no experience. But if you really wanted to build muscles, you'd start with some light weights and then add a little more light weight and a little more light weight. Pretty soon you'll be lifting some substantial weight and you'll be building muscles and you won't hurt yourself. I'm curious because pain is a big issue with our community. Can you use any of these techniques to deal with pain like a migraine or cramps or other physical acute pains? Absolutely. Remember, pain is a messenger. So if I am dealing with pain, there's plenty that I can do. First of all, like with migraines and with any kind of pain, if I give it more and more attention, that's like meditating on a toothache. If I have a toothache and I meditate on it, I'm going to have a whopper of a toothache. But if I can learn to do something other that can help and heal the mind and the body, like people with a migraine, for example, or hormonal issues, if they can begin to start a regimen of drinking six to eight cups of hot water every day, plain hot water every day, it's a tonic for the entire urinary system. And so what happens is it gets rid of all the dirty dishwater, all the poisons, You'll urinate more, but also you'll be excreting a lot of the poisons from the body. So there won't be those contractions. So there's always things to do. The pain is a messenger. The pain is always a messenger. And if you're aware of the pain and you're looking for what the message is, it will appear. You will know where in your life there's conflict. Because the conflict in the mind, in the such case as migraine, begins with the conflict in my mind. In what kind of relationships am I conflicted? In which kind of relationships am I not basing my outer actions on my inner wisdom? In what kind of relationships am I swallowing my truth? rather than being able to lovingly speak my truth because of fear. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why some people get like sick or illness because they hold in their true emotions too much? Over a hundred years ago, William Osler, who was a, a, a physician who became one of the founders of Johns Hopkins University, and medical school. He was known as the father of modern medicine because he helped institute taking medical students out of the classroom and bring them into the hospital for uh, practical application of what they learned. He said something very profound and very reflective of yoga science. He said, don't ask what kind of disease the patient has ask what kind of patient has the disease. He's speaking about the mind there. What is the mind of this person who is presenting a certain form of illness? If I can see the mind and understand the mind and make suggestions to that patient, and sometimes the patient is me, myself. <laughs> Sometimes I'm my own physician for myself. And then, as the physician, I say, why don't you experiment with giving up this attachment that you have, this unskillful habit that you have, just as an experiment, and see how it translates into the decibel level of the pain that you're experiencing. My experience is the more I attend to the 
message of pain, the decibel level gets lower and lower. And the opposite is true. If I do not attend to the decibel level of the pain, it gets louder and louder. Are there any maybe simple exercises that you can share on maybe like falling asleep quicker? The truth is we never go to sleep. Sleep comes to us. The sleep state is one of the changes in our consciousness that all human beings go through. But we have to be prepared to welcome sleep. So what is excellent preparation for that? Eating a proper diet. Not too much, not too little. Making sure that when we go to sleep, that the digestive process is not burdened with food, but rather there's no food being digested during the sleep state. Do some easy, gentle exercise, easy, gentle yoga. Do some breathing practices that will calm the mind and the breath simultaneously. There's an inextricable link between the two. If you calm the breath, you automatically calm the mind. Do a short meditation. Say a prayer. And let the supreme intelligence know that you are now ready. The mind and body is now ready to receive the sleep, to rest and repair the damage that has been done during the day, so that when you awaken, you will be fresh and energized to be of service to the wisdom, the super conscious wisdom reflected by the conscience. There are several types of experiments in your book focusing on attention, breath, and sleep. Are there any others that we can try? Whatever is coming to you in a relationship, make it an experiment. As long as you don't take on too much too soon. But the experiments and the situations and the relationships upon which you can create an experiment will automatically come to us in the process of just living our lives. For example, every thought that comes into our awareness is a new relationship. Whether we're going to go to sleep or we're not going to go to sleep, that is a new relationship. Experiment with it. Am I going to eat this? Am I not going to eat this? That's a new experiment. Am I going to say this word? Am I not going to say this word? Am I going to say a different word? That's another experiment. Am I going to eat this cookie? Am I not going to eat this cookie? Am I going to eat half the cookie? Am I not going to eat half the cookie? Am I going to eat a quarter of the cookie? Doesn't matter. Just do the experiment and see what happens. Can you tell us a little bit about your recent book? Sure. It's called Your Conscience. Be happy to. I had no intention of writing it. It was February, March of 2020. I was quarantined. And I can no longer teach at the American Meditation Institute that I had founded since 1996 because I had no students coming. How does a teacher teach? And what can I teach? And I sat down and I contemplated and I began understanding and seeing on the news, in the newspapers and magazines on the online, the internet, people were having a very difficult time with being in quarantine and dealing with this COVID. Is there anything that I have for them that will help them through this to be more creative, more loving, more beneficial? And I thought to them, 
myself, I said, I need to share with them the wisdom of the conscience and coordinating the four functions of the mind to parent the ego senses and unconscious mind in service to the superconscious wisdom reflected by the conscience. That's what I need to do. I need to serve by writing a book. So I sat down and I explained to people how to use the conscience and what would be the benefit to them, not only through the COVID, but in the midst of every relationship that requires an action that brings about a consequence that leads us in one direction or another. We already know the direction we want to be in. We want to go closer and closer to happiness and health, well-being, and security. The conscience provides us a blueprint, a business plan, a philosophy of life for getting to point B from point A. So I wrote the book. And if people want to learn more from you, where can they go to learn more about your teachings? I teach, as I mentioned, at the American Meditation Institute. Our website, AmericanMeditation.org. And on the homepage, you will see information about the foundation course, which presents all and even more practical tools for experimenting that we discussed today. That's the foundation course on the website homepage, but also on the homepage. And this might be of interest to you, Kat. I present a guided meditation for people free every Sunday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Eastern time. It's a free guided meditation and philosophical conversation, just like you and I are sharing today, Kat. It's free. You get the link right on the AmericanMeditation.org website homepage. And if you attend, you will get a free recording the next Monday that you can use as training wheels. Use it as training wheels to develop your own meditation practice. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience before we have to go? The only thing that I would like to share, Kat, is that I would like to let everybody know who's listening that it is my preference that they not believe a word I have said. Don't be dependent on me. But if there is anything that is of interest to you that you heard, I will support you 100% in experimenting with it. Experiment with what you heard. Don't just believe. Don't just swallow it. Test it. And while you test it, make sure you're wearing one of those hats that say, Doubting Thomas on it. Be a good scientist. Be objective. After you experiment, ask yourself, how do you feel physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? If, in fact, you feel like I have felt better physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, then you'll benefit. If not, then don't do it again. Okay. I like that. This should be one of those disclaimers at the end of everything we listen to. Again, thank you so much for your time and for being with us here today. Thank you for the opportunity. God bless you. I had an episode a while back with Dr. Mona Fahoum of Feminescence, and we spoke about Feminescence, Maca Harmony, and their Maca products. And if you're a woman who's ever had hormonal imbalances, if you're trying to come off the birth control pill, or even if you're going through menopause, this is a natural way to help ease that transition and to help balance your hormones. There's nothing quite like it, so go to feminescence.com, enter code CAT15, K-A-T-1-5, 
for 15% off any of their single pack products. And definitely go check out the episode. Just search for Mona Fahum on my podcast and listen, you won't regret it. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you made it this far, I'm sure you found some benefit to the hard work that I put into the show. Show your support by subscribing to the podcast. Leave me a voicemail question or email me at thehealthfulgypsy at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Be sure to join the Facebook group. You can find all that information in the show notes and my website, katkatibi.com. This podcast is for informational merrymakings and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.